You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're having a conversation with Dr. Janine Brown around the Gospels as narrative and not narrative, sorry, narrative. I just lost my T there, narrative. Uh, and how you how um, sometimes we have this tendency to want to pick out certain stories or and try to understand kind of the story kind of on its own, or we try to understand why that story in that gospel is different to the story in the other gospel, and therefore does that somehow change the accuracy of the story? Um, but Dr. Brown is very interested in seeing the whole gospel as sort of a piece of literature, as 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 a story, a coherent, cohesive story, and to so and to then use that to then try and understand why does Matthew why does Matthew's story about Jesus look like that, uh, and how does that then shape, you know, our understanding of of that? And so we she, we we had a really lovely conversation. She's very passionate about this topic. Yeah, she's she's really insightful, um, and she's just delved into the Gospels and done a lot of work in them to pull out um, the plot, the characterization, the setting, um, yeah, and just be steeped in in the Gospels. And so she was really helpful. She invited uh, people to ask questions and, and to also delve into the text and not just read sections or, or verse one verse at a time, but read whole Gospels to understand mm-hmm. what the Gospel writers were intending when Matthew wrote Matthew or Luke wrote Luke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Dr. Brown is the David Price Professor of Biblical and Theological Foundations at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, and she's taught there for quite a while, since 1995. And she also is a member of the Committee of, on Bible Translation for the NIV. And she was also saying about being on the children's NIV translation team as well. And she's published numerous books and journal articles and essays on, on the Gospels, obviously, as well as other aspects of the New Testament and in the areas of hermeneutics and biblical theology and this interdisciplinary integration and so we she's also coming to join us here in Vancouver at Regent College for a summer class at the end of July Uh, and so we hope that you'll enjoy our conversation and perhaps consider signing up for the class with Dr Brown so we hope you enjoy our conversation. Janine, welcome to the Regent College Podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. We're so glad to have you. Um, We'd love to just hear a little bit about you and how you were saying earlier that you love talking about this topic of the narrative of narrative in scripture. Mm -hmm. How did you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you become interested in that? Well, um, uh, you know, went to Sunday school as a kid, but what couldn't have told you um, wider narratives, really, especially when you think about Jesus and the Gospels, which is where I spend my time. I could tell you every story about Jesus, but I couldn't tell you where they fit and who told it to us and, you know, whether it was Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And so when I got to college and we did what was back in these old days called a manuscript study where you they'd send you a copy of a typed manuscript of Acts in the mail because this is prior to being able to print all that out. I'm not dating mm. myself. But, um, no, no, not at all. <laughs> it was just so 
all of Acts, read through it. I, you know, it could write all over it, right? Because it was a, so they're pieces of paper. And um, it was that kind of glimpse into, oh, there's something bigger here. Mm-hmm. And when I got to seminary uh, and studied actually redaction criticism, so thinking about how do the gospels compare with one another, uh, the whole idea that Matthew has a distinctive set of themes and Luke has, and there's lots in common, right? But but this distinctiveness of each gospel is really highlighted in the redactional method. And that was, but it gave me the whole gospel in a way that I had not heard it, seen it quite that way before. And I was very excited about these themes that would crop up in some parts of a gospel that you don't have in Mark, or you don't have quite the same way in Luke. And that became sort of my entree into then what I studied in my doctoral work was narrative criticism. And that's just mm-hmm. right at the center of narrative approaches is this idea that each story is told distinctively. Um, even though, again, there are overlapping themes and ideas about who Jesus is, of course, and they all end on a cross and resurrection kind mm-hmm. of arc. Um, but there is something very distinctive about each. And I that was mesmerizing for me. I mm. kind of fell in love with studying each of the gospels. I did my dissertation work in Matthew. So that's where I did lots of my initial work, but I just loved studying each of the gospels. And it felt like it had been not gifted to me from my younger years, even though I had mm. got lots of good training in my church context or, you know, read the Bible a lot, but saw something new that I thought I felt like this could keep me going for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah. I could keep on coming back and seeing these stories in rich ways. And is that kind of what propelled you? You you wrote a book called The Gospel as Stories. Is that what kind of propelled you to and inspired you to write that book? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The Gospels as Stories, which was published in 2020. Um, but I, I, I kind of talk about it as a book I always wanted to write, but I didn't know it yet until mm. in about 2015 or so. Um, uh, my editor said, would you like to write a gospel's introduction? I said, oh, no. Well, I mean, I love them. They're so helpful. But like, I that's not, no. There's lots of good ones. One of my, my colleagues, Mark Strauss, he's a Bethel Seminary professor. He wrote one. I don't need to rewrite what he wrote. It was great. Yeah. I said, but I would do something on method for, for seeing these holes because mm-hmm. I had been teaching my students um, to do that more and more. Now, when I was right out fresh out of doctoral work and teaching, I gave students little teeny episodes to study. Mm-hmm. And like, and after about five years, I'm like, why am I doing this? This is, I mean, I, I'm studying the whole vista. I'm trying to get my head around these things. And why wouldn't I help my students or press them to get their head around a bigger section of a gospel? So now I have them do a plot theme diagram on the Luke travel narrative, which is, if you know Luke, it's like this really lengthy thing, Luke 9, 51 through maybe 1927. They have to visualize it somehow for me. Mm-hmm. I go, that's those are fun to look yeah. at. Those are great. Uh, right. So it felt like the book I always wanted to write to help them see that. And but I wasn't ready to write it until you know I think when I did. Um, so it, it's it's this idea that we there are certain kinds of things to pay attention to in a gospel that really open up the the story, help us to see it and hear. It. Not mm-hmm. that we're not all seeing here the same way, um, but we're gonna start to get these kind of maybe common storyline moments that again, open, open up new ways of thinking about yeah. the text. Yeah. Yeah. And is, so is this, given that you were saying you didn't grow up with this sort of sense of, you know, of how to understand the gospels, is it that this, your approach then is, is a new approach? How does it differ than how scholars yeah. have done that in the past? Is it, talk to us about that. 
Yeah, um, it really does come out of narrative criticism, which um, was sort of narratology brought into the gospel studies. Narrative criticism is a term used particularly in New Testament gospel studies and in biblical studies. Um, and that was in the 80s. So, um, hmm. you know, the key, Mark, uh, Rhodes and Mitchie on Mark, Mark's story, Kingsbury, Matthew's story, um, Tannehill on Luke, and Culpepper and John. I mean, there are these classics in each of the areas. So it already had been started to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, they often focus not exclusively, but, uh, you know, kind of on the plot and um, the storyline and characters as well, but kind of heavy maybe on just thinking, how do you read the whole thing? And what do you see differently when you read the whole thing? Well, then narrative criticism, I think, really expanded to do a lot of different things. So characterization became such a hot ticket item in the last 15 to 20 years. Um, and Cornelius Benema and some of his work. And I had done some work in my dissertation on the characterization of the Mathean disciples. So I did some work on ancient characterization. So I kind of thought through those pieces. Um, and I thought, what about a book that brings all that together and then does some work with intertextuality? How do the gospel writers use the Old Testament? Because that's mm-hmm. such, you know, that is the prominent intertext, right? I mean, right. the Jewish scriptures. Um, and then at the very, so I, I do a section on plot and plotting, characters and characterization, intertextuality, um, you said the Old Testament, and then a narrative theology. What does it mean to think theologically with the storyline instead of a sort of against the grain by saying, I'm just going to pick out little pieces yeah. and do proposition theo- propositional theology, theologizing with a narrative? What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so those four topics course there are four gospels so that worked really well and i picked one gospel for each (laughs) to illustrate it so luke we illustrate plot plotting matthew characters characterization my dissertation work kind of comes through there Mm -hmm. don't reinvent the wheel janine and then um (laughs) intertextuality john's gospel um i love working with john and the old testament because it's not always quoted but it's a you know lots of illusion and then mark and narrative theology Mm. so um so it it it, it brings it together in kind of a primer. I think of it as yeah. a primer, not not like easy, 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 but trying to make it very accessible. So if you want to try out some of these various things that scholars have tried their hand at, character study, uh, it gives you the tools to do so. It's a real mm, yeah. tool production book. I mean, it's producing uh, the possibility of using these same kind of tools. So, you know, not the kind of thing, I'm going to give you a fish, but I'm going to give you a fishing pole and teach you how to fish. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what the book does. Yeah. 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 Dr. Brown, I don't know if I was trained this way growing up or, or if somehow I, I intuited it, but oftentimes reading the gospels, I would go to it looking for a principle to pull out or mm-hmm. something to, to take of like a nugget of truth. And, and I, I, not that I think that's completely wrong, but one of the things you talk about is um, the gospels as storytelling literature and even kind of what you're talking about here as characterization, inviting the readers in to the world of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, I just wonder like, how can, how can people who are reading the gospel specifically do this effectively, like see kind of be invited into the world of Jesus? That's a great question because, um, uh, generalization or taking principles is is one kind of one tool amongst many we do in terms of thinking about how do we recontextualize or mm-hmm. you know um, think about theology for today or you know theologizing with the text. Um, but in a story, it it often doesn't work for it. It works better for what Jesus says versus what he does. 
Mm. So you right. take what he does. And so do I just do everything Jesus does? Yeah. You right. know what I mean? It's those kinds right. of weird and wonderful questions. Of, so instead kind of thinking about how does, how is Mark theologizing? How does mm-hmm. Matthew theologize? You know, how does that story inform Matthew's theology? So you wouldn't know um, the Christological category of Jesus as wisdom if you were looking for an explicit statement in the Gospels. You can go to Paul and um, hear some some of that language a little bit more. Yeah. So, but Matthew 11 is all about Jesus's wisdom, I would argue, um, as implicitly he is shown to be the most wise, but also the one who embodies the Torah or the the whole the um, the sort of concept of personification of wisdom from the Old Testament. He's he's he lives that out. He is he is that. Mm. Um, so uh, narrative theology presses us to think beyond sort of stated categories. And why would mm-hmm. that, because when you tell a story, you don't have to say, and the moral of the story is. I mean, that's only Aesop's fables that we read that, right? You don't have right. to, because you got it. I mean, mm-hmm. I love to read novels. You know, for Christmas, I got all seven Jane Austen novels, which I've read mm-hmm. before my husband bequeathed them to me again, and I've been reading through them. And it's like, you 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 get how to make sense and meaning out of a story. Of course you do. And Jane doesn't have to say, I call her Jane, because I'm on such a first name basis. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she doesn't have to say, and this is the meaning of the story yeah, that it would yeah. be, right. it would be overkill. It would be like, no, 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 no. We get that. We know. I just trust yourself to know how to read the story that Matthew tells. Yeah. Trust yourself to know how to read the story John tells and listen for the theology that emerges in cracks and corners as well as kind of centrally. You don't want to miss mm. the central theological claims of Jesus. Say I am, I am statements are huge in John and the implication that Jesus is, the Messiah of life, as Genesis shows up, not just in chapter one, but in chapters 19 through 20, ah, listen to that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder one, um, you know, talking about this whole thing of like seeing the stories in little bits and pieces and sort of trying mm-hmm. to pull out nuggets and things like that. Would you say that um, if even if the same stories are put in each gospel, is it because they're there? Like why why do they choose some why are they all choosing you know some of the similar ones yeah. and are they putting them there for different reasons given the bigger story that they're trying to tell do you think like could we can yeah. we make that kind of yeah I think they can play on different facets of it and mm. you can see kind of like the um, the man with the son who falls into the fire who well, you know is it, it, it has a demon possession or is ill or, you know, there's different emphases depending on which gospel you're in the, look at the way that story ends in all the three synoptics, it shows up in three synoptics. It ends with a different kind of application, if you might say. So don't run roughshod over that. Live with it and listen to it because of your little faith, Matthew says. And because this one only comes up by prayer and maybe prayer and fasting and Mark. And, and so just, and they right. all glorify God and Luke, because they always glorify God and Luke when things happen, which is great. I mean, we should hear that and listen to, well, what does that tell us about what Luke wants to offer? Yeah. I think about the parable of the, the um the lost sheep and the wandering sheep. Lost sheep, Luke 15, we're very familiar with that context. Three mm-hmm. lost things, right? Matthew 18, the wandering sheep, the one that has wandered away. Well, that's perfect in Matthew 18 because it is about the little ones that are most vulnerable and how to go after whether little ones or wandering ones. That's the next part transitions to that. And what about forgiveness in the midst of all that? It's it's a perfect parable to put right in the middle of Matthew 18. So let that be the wandering and the lost. And, and don't try to say, well, I mean, you can say, well, which one did Jesus say sort of form critically? We could say maybe there's one. You know, I 
I think I um NT writes and, and other people's reminders said Jesus told these a lot mm-hmm. and adapted them as he went. It doesn't mean that in the gospel tradition we don't don't have maybe one that sits at kind of at the earliest stage, but why don't we enjoy them in their narrative context? That's mm-hmm. always me. Let's mm-hmm. hear them and listen to them and gain what we're supposed to from its narrative usage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has a little so, bit of a different function. And yeah. both, right. even though, of course, the, you know, the sort of the guts of the story are the very guts, similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Yes. Yeah, like the guts of the story are the same, but then, yeah. there, but there's where it's placed sort of sometimes. Yes. And then as you say, like what's going on around it and then yeah. what, like the thread that's kind of being pulled is slightly right. different. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same. Thread being pulled. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 In, in looking at the, the different features within kind of the, the specific gospels, the different literary features, what, you know, there's, I th- I maybe you want to expound on it. There's plot, characterization, setting. Did I miss, what else no, is Those there? are kind of the, the three those main, the three I mean, conflict it. can be part of plot and all right. that, thing, but those are the yeah, three yeah. main pieces. You have pieces. like climax mm-hmm. and the story and all. Okay. What what would you say is most challenging to, to analyze from a narrative perspective? Yeah. I mean, once you get to recognizing these things, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of part of the, part of the um, initial challenge is just, oh, setting. Oh, John, John 5 through 11 has... Sabbath and Passover, then booths, then, you know, all these festival settings and then Hanukkah. It's like, oh, I think there's something that we might want to hear there. But so once you get to hearing it, I think the challenging, the one more challenging of plot, setting and character is character characterization. Um, In part, because I think we do characters quite differently today. Mm. If you go to a movie and you Uh can walk away saying, I don't know if there was any plot at all. The characterization was amazing. You know, right. you can you can kind of characterization. It, it, the, we want to get in their heads. Ancient characterization doesn't. You know, there's not a lot of internal life mm, being explored mm-hmm. when it shows up. It's like, well, that's really interesting because we didn't get any of that for the last seven chapters. So, mm-hmm. so there is. It's so different in how we do it and how we derive meaning from character meaning from characterization. Characterization is often more in the service of the plot in ancient narratives, yeah. but not always. I mean, I think Benema's work has been really helpful to say, and there are just some characters that stay with us. What is that about? So I explore that a lot in that chapter on characterization. And I use um, John four and the woman at the well to kind of walk through one character and keep on illustrating these various subtopics of the chapter with her story. Oh, um, so I think it's a diff- more difficult because of, our, our differing expectations. We want to psychoanalyze characters mm-hmm. and they do. We just don't get much for that. Mm-hmm, I always say, right. you know, I'm more interested in what Matthew's thinking than what Peter's thinking. I hate to say it mm-hmm. in Matthew is like, Oh, he's so interesting. Right. He's, he's rash. He's bold. He's jumping out of boats and then he's little faith. And Oh my goodness. He's, but I'm still more interested in what Matthew thinks or what Matthew is communicating. And we'll put it that way about Jesus and the Jesus story and the way of discipleship via Peter than yeah. trying to get in his head. But a lot of our sermons are like, get into the head of Peter. I'm like, oh, don't do it. Because I don't think the ancient writers thought to give us that. That wasn't how they thought and did characterization, even though I think there is a way to do that, that mm-hmm. pays attention. As long as you're paying attention to Matthew, talk about what Peter's up to. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Good. But don't go rogue on Peter, you know? Right, yeah. Right. That, Peter, Peter was the example I was thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the one where we where we all think we kind of know what's going on. And it's mm-hmm. like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He is a lovable character, he and is. his foibles are sometimes mine and sometimes not. But, you know, you're just like, yeah. oh, yeah, Peter, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's fine. I think recognizing where you stop and where Peter starts, so it's good to be differentiated from the characters. Right. right. <laughs> so it's good, too. So. Yeah. Just in general. Um, yeah, exactly. In the, in the characterization part, would you would you contain the characterization then to the, the – the, the particular gospel or would you spread it out mm. and sort of think, oh, we see this in Peter here in John, but we see this in Matthew, you know, I don't know. Yeah. How, would you, how would you think about that? I, I like to do comparative studies, but I'd really want to yeah. let each author have their own voice. I just was looking at Warren Carter's great book on Pilate. And he, he, he does, he gives those narrative contours they're doing. I love that about that book. Um, even though he's, you know, he's talking about historically who we, might know Pilate, we don't have a lot about him, you know, and then um, the four portraits and then into later interpretation, you know, kind of the history of interpretation. Um, but I think to do that in an um, analytical way, rather than I'm just going to now amalgam them together. That's, you know, mm-hmm. I grew up in a context where you harmonized everything, you know, before I even looked at a gospel, just in case there might be something we weren't really comfortable with, we stuck them together, you know, <laughs> harmonized. <laughs> and like, there, there's a place for harmony. I mean, there's, there's a place to kind of think about the harmonization move. Um, mm. But I'm not very drawn to it and because probably I got overkill in my growing up years on harmonization. Yeah. And and I don't think you need it to, to say the Gospels are um, truthful accounts of who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think about accuracy and we think about often um, – you know, exact chronology. Mm-hmm. And there's books that try to kind of tell you exactly what the chronology of Jesus' life was. Again, I'm not that interested in that move because what we have in the four gospels are four chronologies mm. that aren't exact, but given that these all resemble ancient biographies or bioi, which were more interested than theme than minute moments of exact mm. chronology, mm-hmm. you know, the theme becomes how you tell the story truthfully. Yeah. Because it's, you're telling something really important about the character. Right. You know, Jesus is healer, Matthew 8 through 9. Those stories do not line up in the exact same order in Mark or Luke as they do in Matthew 8 through 9. Mm-hmm. But Jesus as healer is clearly one of the reasons those have been brought together in the way they have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's untruthful about that? Yeah. Unless we uh, have a particular way of going at that question mm-hmm. of um, what would make a gospel writer kind of inaccurate when yeah. 21st think, century goals or first century goals. Yeah, you know? right. yeah. I think that's really helpful to hear um, coming from our contemporary lens where we tend to view history or reporting as factual or, you know, that, that fact finding, we need to figure out what the truth is within mm-hmm. that. I wonder if you could share and maybe elaborate on kind of what you were just sharing a little bit more about the questioning of the historical accuracies of the gospel, um, but then also how narrative addresses these concerns. Like, I guess you kind of answered it, but maybe in more detail, what, how in our modern lens, like that we see history, what's kind of what's differing in what the gospel writers are trying to convey um, when it comes to like historical accuracy. Like accuracy and stuff, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Um the need for accuracy a la strict chronology, not an ancient perspective, um, the need to give us the exact wording 
not an ancient sensibility, um, reportage of what someone said. Um, so just being allowing for those differences, that doesn't solve every historical conundrum in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, some could say, well, I'm drawn, I'm drawn to narrative approaches because I came out of this place where I had to kind of somehow defend the Gospels constantly. I did feel like that was my job. I was to be an apologist. When I mm-hmm. found out I didn't have to be an apologist, but I could be a hermeneut or an interpreter of the Gospels, mm-hmm. oh, glory be, it was a wonderful day. <laughs> and, and, I would just rather do that. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to, you know, cover over important questions people have where they say, but Luke says this and Mark yeah. says this. Fair. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. And Mark has a purpose for what Mark is doing. I mean, I really believe that. I see Luke's purpose is worked out. So if there's a difference in order, which again is not a big issue in ancient biography, which wants, you know, wants to communicate via theme as well as chronology, as well as sort of plotting. Um, That just helps me to kind of decide what conversations are really important to have related to historical Mm -hmm. reliability and which ones are like, well, you know, that's just us putting our stuff on Mark or Luke or Matthew. Um, So I kind of want to be somewhere kind of sensitive to people's questions that are really and good, real good questions. Um, and also kind of alleviate, give them the relief that I didn't have, which was you don't have to right. pound everything into an exact chronology. No, yeah. you know, what the Diatessaron did in the second century, which is put everything together and figure out what order, because if you put everything together from all four Gospels, you had to figure out the order of it, right? Yeah. But that's not any one of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. That That isn't what we were given. That's not Scripture as I know it. Right. These four portraits. And Irenaeus says, we had to have had four. You know, he goes to this place of just not even just saying these four are great, but we had, their four were the, was the number we had to mm-hmm. have. You know, so yeah. it's just so interesting to see that the church in the earliest days lived with the four in ways that sometimes we want to smooth over and do weird things with. So it's interesting to think about the harmonizing impulse and where it comes from and what we might do instead Mm -hmm. of harmonizing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As a, you you mentioned as as a hermeneut, that's a great. Uh, I don't know That's a new word for me. I like that. Yeah. A hermeneutic. I can make hermeneutic sound like anything. I can. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally. A hermeneutic. That's a thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah a as a, a hermeneutic, um, but then also a kind of former or maybe still kind of apologist. Is there any validity to um, when it comes to interpretation in thinking about the Gospels and even 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 the Bible? in trying to address the modern day skepticism of like the idea that all history is interpretive in, in some ways I've heard different hermeneutic or hermeneutes uh, talk about that. Yeah. I I think I like Joel Green's stuff on that. He will talk about, you know, we we're out. I mean, it's always interpreted, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're not um, the facts, just the facts, Mm-hmm. Kind of, we always fill in gaps. There are gaps in narrative that inevitably we fill in. Um, so I do think history writing and then history interpretation is always about from a particular vantage point mm-hmm. and is interpretation of the Jesus story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think Matthew, Mark, and John purport to be, and I believe them to be faithful interpreters of the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it is it is an interpretation. I mean, you know, we believe they are scriptures, so they were inspired to do that of uh, uh, telling of the story. Or right? I yeah. believe that, but it's also the case that they come out in four different ways that um, do have points of rub to them that right. people will always raise. And I never want to be dismissive of people who raise the questions because mm. they're usually quite observant mm-hmm. and thoughtful. And they're often in my context, they're lay people and students who say, but what about this? And they come with the greatest questions and mm. it invites me to sit in the text a little bit longer and, mm-hmm. you know, do some comparative work when often I'm really interested in doing the portrait work. Right. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I can see your impulse is like, let me just let me just keep it keep it as one kind of. Okay, I have a great story about that. Okay. So, was doing my Matthew commentary in the Two Horizons series. Invited Kyle Roberts, a theologian, to teach with me, and we decided to teach a class, Matthew for theology. So we did. We had a class, and we were in Matthew, and we were talking about theological angles, and he was bringing all sorts of interesting things to bear. And one day in class, a student said, "Yeah, but Jesus does this," and I said, "Not in Matthew. He doesn't." You know. <laughs> I mean, I like that my anxiety went whoop and my corrective, you know, my mother came out or something like, not the Matthew, he does. But, you know, that becomes important for my Mm. work. Um, But then, so if he does it in Luke, well, that's really interesting to think of as a Luke of the thing Jesus does, Um, but not in Matthew, you know, so trying to have that as much as possible coherent picture. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not saying that everything is utterly easy and coherent in every gospel, but if we can stay with the text and try to hear it without importing, oh, but we know this from another gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, maybe that feels somewhat artificial, but, um, you know, what we hear from Justin Martyr early in the church's history is that um, when the church gathered, they read the gospels, you know, the memoirs of the apostle, or that, you know, they read these texts as long as they had time. You know, I mean, they read them for longer periods of time than seven verses or mm-hmm. 10 verses, the practice was to read them uh, more as wholes. I'm not mm-hmm. sure how that always worked in every context, but uh, you can imagine receiving as a community, a gospel and going, uh, well, let's just read a verse or two at a time. And we'll come back we'll next make, week we'll for a few more. We'll be able to figure that out. Yeah, we'll be able to figure out what's no, going on. you sit and listen to the story captivated, I presume, yeah. by somebody yeah. who could read it fairly well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you, this is it's, you've sort of you're sort of touching on this all the time, but this whole idea of understanding, kind of paying close attention to the social and cultural context in mm-hmm. which they're written. So you've said, you yeah. know, not necessarily telling things in order, or maybe not necessarily um, saying exact words that yeah. were, that were said or whatever. Um, is there anything? Can you tell us anything more about that? There may be some things that will help us, but um, how does how, how does that sort of deepen our understanding yeah. of the gospels? So I tell my students, you're going to always read every biblical text with a context. Yeah, You're going to set a setting behind it. Mm-hmm. It's whether you're going to do that thoughtfully with some, some historical help, being a bit of a historian yourself. you got to be a bit of a historian. And he writes that once. I think if you're going to study a historical figure like Jesus, you might want to be a little bit of a historian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Um, so you're going to put it behind, or you're going to put your own stuff behind. So um, you never read a text context-lessly. So um, that's another know, great word. There we go. Made up. <laughs> I didn't say it. Almost, great, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so things like um, is Herod in Matthew two just a Jewish figure, Jewish king, king of the Jews, or is he very complicated because he's got Roman alliances and he's actually an Indian and not Jewish from ancestry? So 
you know, do already have a complex sort of partially Roman figure at the beginning of the story, not just at the end of Pilate. I'd like to think, yes, that is much more complicated. His, you know, his dad and grandfather had great relationships with Rome. They kept that thing going because that worked well for them, mm-hmm. right? Um, purity regulations. Oh, my goodness. We do such odd things with purity in the Gospels, as Amy Jill Levine and um, Matthew Thiessen have pointed out, in part because we just aren't in a purity culture. So as much as we can learn about those strictures are just regulations that people lived with. Like, you know, we live with all sorts of regulations. We have more laws on our books than the Jewish people ever did, according mm-hmm. to E.G. Levine talks about how that mm-hmm. tons of laws that we, we just live and abide within or yeah. you know, push yeah. ourselves outside of on occasion or whatever. But we think, you know, we just know how to do this thing called life. And purity mm-hmm. wasn't all that onerous. Mm. It was fairly easy to become. And it wasn't like, oh, now I have sinned. It's I've become impure. You know, I better not head to the temple until I take care of this. Mm. You know, so just kind of bringing more of that knowledge in as we read the text. So we don't kind of go, oh, she's impure. Nobody would talk to her or touch her. And she had this ring around her a mile wide and she couldn't have gone to synagogue. Or, I mean, it's just like we tend to blow things up in these um, ways that we wouldn't do if we knew more about that topic. Yeah. So what else did blow up? That's, oh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, that's, but so, yeah, I mean, ancient views of children are quite different than children in the modern context. When Jesus uses a child, I think he's using him to talk about, using the child to talk about status in Matthew 18 and not about humility, natural humility, mm-hmm. children. Natu- I have two grandchildren. I'm like, they're not naturally humble. They're, they're very <laughs> good at telling you how great they are. Selfish. <laughs> you know, it's also their developmental stage, right? Mm. Uh, one I love is the, um, and this was one that Don Versaput, who was my colleague at Bethel and passed away a number of years ago, but um, just such an influence on me. Um, he would read Psalm of Solomon 17, you know, so so early, uh, so first century, maybe a hundred, not even a hundred years before the time of Jesus, um, which it has, you know, this messianic figure in it and what God is going to be doing kind of the eschatological messianic hope kinds of stuff. And um, verse 44 reads like this, blessed are those who shall live to see those days, to see the good fortune of Israel, which God shall bring about when the tribes are gathered in. And then he turned to um, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for mm-hmm. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so these blessings of the one who just are, is there when the time arrives. And that's what I want people to hear in the in the Beatitudes, which have been read all sorts of different ways. Rebecca Eklund's wonderful book on kind of hearing all the ways that's been read throughout history. But how would and the earliest hearers, how would Matthew's audience as well, have heard those? These mm-hmm. blessings just because you get to be there. And the way then God is turning things upside down, mm-hmm. the most unlikely are blessed because God has arrived. God's kingdom is the one that is of peace and justice. And now God is arriving. And and blessed are those who mourn. Mm-hmm. You don't say that to people. You don't go to a funeral and say hi. Blessed are you because you're mourning. You just don't do that. You might read it as a text from the front, but if you say it to somebody, that's just that's just rude. Mm-hmm. Right. And but but Jesus is talking about a reversal that's happening in the now that's starting to be enacted. And so kind of hearing that eschatological bubbling up at the early part of the it's all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, but early part in the Beatitudes, it helped to kind of put that text behind and go, oh, that makes me think a little differently about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's really helpful. Dr. Brown, I wonder if we could stick on the Beatitudes 
and and maybe talk about one of the things you've shared is that the gospels present kind of a um a cohesive narrative within each of them so i wonder like and and i don't know if this is helpful or not in in looking at it but comparatively like if you look at the beatitudes in luke and the beatitudes in matthew mm-hmm. what is i guess my question is what's matthew doing differently than Luke or Luke doing differently than Matthew in the Beatitudes. Yeah. Well, one thing is that it's the very first thing Jesus teaches. Now he's preached, you know, the summary of his preaching, um, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand 417. And he said why he wants to be baptized in the 315. But in terms of teaching here, this is the first thing Matthew front ends or highlights Mm. uh, the sermon, this sermon that's been called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So the Beatitudes are the first thing out of his mouth announcing a blessing in this time when God is bringing all of, you know, all this newness about. Mm-hmm. And where, whereas in Luke, it shows up a little later and right. it's, it's shorter. And it's also, as you know, blessed are the poor mm-hmm. versus poor in spirit. I think sometimes that's a bigger difference is made out of those in context mm-hmm. than maybe needs to be made. Poor in spirit sounding. It, it, uh, Matthew's Beatitudes have been very much internalized kind of to be mm-hmm. virtues. Yeah. Like here, blessed are the virtuous, blessed are the virtuous, blessed are the virtuous. So you mourn over your sin, although that he doesn't ever say that. So, you know, um, Mark Allen Powell has a great article where he talks about how the first four are really about those in destitute state, hmm. in spiritually impoverished mourning um, on the lowest rung of society, the meek, you know, the the, the lowest, the lowly, um, those who are starved for justice. Mm-hmm. And I just think, wow, that's a different way of reading these. So, and it they tends to line up a little better with Luke, but not with the intention of sort of doing a harmonizing point by point. But mm-hmm. he reads them to say, I think this is saying something quite different than we originally thought. Um, and so I think it's helpful to notice the differences in terms of location and also the, the woes that come in the woe to the rich, you know, I mean, just much more in your face. Right. I think they're functioning differently in Matthew. They are meant to be this, um, um, encouraging announcement of blessing to that the audience, both of Matthew, but also the first, the disciples are the ones that are noted as the audience right in five, one through two. So this sense of, those who don't have much now, I mean, those who don't have much at all in terms of spiritual resources, in terms of they live with grief on a daily basis, you know, mm-hmm. all these things, God is making things right now. He's starting to make things all, Jesus is starting to make things right. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation, but Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know, share it with them, share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the, on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? 
That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. I just wonder, do you have any, like for for people who are maybe new to reading scripture or the gospel specifically and want to take more of this approach and kind of get caught up in the life of Jesus and the disciples, mm-hmm. um, but finding it challenging sometimes and maybe yeah. don't have the whole, you know, time to go into the social, cultural, all those things. Yeah. Like, do you have any... Uh, words of encouragement or advice or like even tools um, that would be helpful? Sure. Yeah. Besides my book, right? No. Mm-hmm. Just no, totally. Your and your class. Um, right. Yeah. In my class yeah. this summer, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think getting used to reading larger sections, you know, and also listening, audio, mm-hmm. you know, Bible mm-hmm. on audio, David Suchet, who's, mm-hmm. you know, the Hercule Pro guy who plays GoPro and the BBC things, he reads the Bible in, oh. like, can get the NIV on disc or something or whatever yeah. downloaded. Like, I would listen to him read anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, so, I mean, you know, you can you can also just hit on Bible Gateway, read for me, and it'll do mm-hmm. that. So um, for people who do, would like to do it while they're doing something else, read the, you know, have the Bible read, read listen to the Matthew all the way through on your walk mm-hmm. or on your run or something like that. Start yeah. to um, do those kind of, bigger reading kinds of tasks, but mm-hmm. do it in a way that makes sense with, you know, kind of time and life and all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I print things out still. See, they, you know, that whole Acts thing, you send it in the mail. And now, you know, that's what I do with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John too. I write all over things, mm-hmm. print out texts and write them out in yeah. some, you know, whole books. Um, and, and then the historical piece, I mean, I think it's hard to know what you need to know, right? That's the hard part mm-hmm. about historical background. It's like in this passage, what would I need to know? Those right. really helpful tools, Bible background commentaries. So mm-hmm. Zondervan has one, InterVarsity Press has one, and sometimes they have multiple ones for the whole Bible. Um, but those are really helpful because they tell you in a particular passage, not verse by verse, but kind of passage by passage, what do I need to know? Mm-hmm. What about that historical, socio-historical context am I kind of clueless about? Um, what what do I need to be filled in on? So those can be really helpful, Yeah. quick Um Place, places where you can quickly get a picture of that because mm-hmm. it doesn't have everything that's in a commentary. It's really focused on Bible background. Mm-hmm. Um, commentaries will give you that information as well, but you're sifting through a lot more material, right? Because yeah. they're talking about interpretation and text critical issues and all sorts of stuff. But so Bible background commentary can be just a helpful yeah. one-stop shop sort of mm-hmm. tool. Yeah. That's helpful. Do you, do you find it, um, this may be a, a tangential question. A rogue question. A rogue question. Rogue? Do you find it helpful or distracting, or maybe both, to dramatize the text? Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is it could be all the way from dramatize it in a way to fluctuate of the voice, mm-hmm. um, how you would read it uh, in that way. Or it could also mean as far as like what we've done um, say with the chosen or different yeah. uh, 
yeah dramas being put out uh, on the gospels like i don't know do you have thoughts on on that mm. yeah um i taught a course uh with my colleague john dunn a new testament scholar um jesus now playing so we we thought about gospels ancient tellings of jesus story like gospel of peter to get et cetera, and then film Mm. And he watched like every film of Jesus from the last hundred years, which is a lot of them. Wow. And I watched some of them, but, um, and we're working on a book actually. Um, it won't be called that same thing, but we're, um, so we've thought a lot about telling and retelling the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing he, he's really perceptive on because we, you have a number of, especially seventies, eighties, nineties, even a number of Jesus films where they take the, the text of John and they, dramatize it right so there's that they're faithful representations is kind of how they portray themselves um but of course they're already interpreting by visualizing anything at all Mm -hmm. and by any kind of intro that they might have or by how they choose you know is it in english or is it in aramaic you know i mean they, they choose different ways of doing that right um there are lots of interpretive decisions and and um, though I don't love to watch Jesus films, so I'll just say that. I just mm. I find I find I have too many things going on I and my like evaluation goes really high. Ah, t- this, oh, yeah. I don't I don't yeah. have it for the like academic reasons that you have it, no. but I'm like, oh it's just this, this is awkward. Yeah. <laughs> awkward. There's a word that yeah, exactly. It's what's been really interesting is to press into analysis, just stay in analysis, quit evaluating because no story is completely faithful. I mean, you you know what I mean? You can't, Mm. you can't, I mean, you're going to make decisions that somebody's going to say, well, that doesn't fit historically with, you know, you can't win unless you're just trying to tell the Jesus story in a new context Mm. um, and Mm. do something. And then asking what is the filmmaker trying to do? So it's called the second horizon of the film. So first horizon, Mm. Jesus horizon, or gospels horizon, um, second horizon, film horizon. That's been so interesting to think about. And some films are very obvious in terms of, what they're doing. And some of them are very obviously aware of what they're doing. And some are so obviously not aware of what they're doing, mm-hmm. but even a faithful representation is doing all sorts of interpreting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, all the right. way through in terms yeah. of what people look like. I'm just, and I did just wrote the villains chapter. Oh, that was fun. The yeah. villains of the Jesus story. So, um, you know, how people look, I mean, it's mm-hmm. awful sometimes how the Jewish leaders are portrayed. They have a down to bad teeth, you know I mean? Just mm. in some films, it's just, it's, I get awkward talking about awkward <laughs> because it's not, you know, it's like, oh, they're making decisions that are, that could be very damaging. Yeah. To right. all sorts of people. And you know, the mm-hmm. way Mary Magdalene gets portrayed, the ways that we never right. talked about in scripture. Well, but she's the prostitute. Well, she, no, she's not. Nobody ever said that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's like, you know, so, but it is, staying in mm-hmm. analysis helped me kind of press into this project and go, yeah, this is really interesting. <laughs> it helps alleviate the awkward. Yeah. So <laughs> just, harmonization just as a tendency. Oh, you yeah. see that in, in you know, Oh, Jesus of Nazareth or um, um, greatest story ever told, you know, the, all sorts of mm-hmm. harmony, which, so mm-hmm. it's just kind of interesting to put up that lens and say, what's going on. It's not terribly different other than yeah. now we have film. Um, right. For a long time we had passion plays. Well, that's interesting too. And, you know, so just, it's been interesting to think about and um, I still, I love, yeah. Awkward. Yeah. Like Claire said, I, you know, <laughs> just, there's something that just kind of cringes in me yeah. right before I have to go and watch, but then it gets kind of in the story. But once you get into it, it's okay. Right. Yeah, that's right. You've just got to, it's true. You've got to suspend 
You've got to suspend yes. something and just kind of enter yes. in. Evaluation, yes. Yes. evaluation yeah. judgment, even yeah. analytical. Right. Pieces. And I grew up watching Ben-Hur. I don't know why that was a good one yeah. to watch, but my parents like that. And when it, it probably came on every Easter or something. Mm-hmm. And there Jesus shows up just twice and you never see him. You see him interacting with, oh, I just, I think that's so fascinating. Talk oh, about yeah. the Christology of Ben-Hur. Wow. Right. That's never on screen, but the hands, you know, reaching down to yeah. give water. And it's mm-hmm. like, wow, yeah. that's just wild. Yeah. Um, so it, it, interesting, as long as I can let go of the, <sighs> yeah, spend my time in the gospels and I'd rather be there than in a Jesus movie. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but people love the chosen people. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I'm not. I'm not here to bash anything like that. Totally. No, no, it's just yeah, makes sense. But it no, is interesting. I, mm-hmm. I think it's really helpful to hear. And I, I don't know. It, even when you're talking about Ben Hur, have you have you delved into any like children's Bibles or like looked oh, that's into what I was any, thinking too. Any, children's like, Bibles and how? Yeah. Oh, they're yeah. visualize the visual. Uh-huh. Yeah, the drawings. Well, visualize and then um, also well, just like, because know. I have I've had kids and I have grandkids. Um, um, I thought about those things, you know, mm. how do we, what kind of, what do we put around? To, yeah. Yes. What are we choosing? How are mm-hmm. we telling them? Yeah. Um, I try to look for ones that um, are not just all white people uh, in right. the, in the drawings and are, you know, kind of, I don't know, feel like they emphasize the right kinds of themes, mm. but of course that's an interpretive judgment. And mm. yeah, yeah. Yes. I've, I've worked on the, um, I'm on the NIV translation team and I've worked on the NIRV team, which is the children's mm-hmm. Bible, mm-hmm. which is a different oh, question because yeah. it's yeah. not about what comes all the way around. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the text of the whole, but um, I do like to think about how, how these messages are communicated to yeah. kids and how, you know, even we translate for children or for readers who haven't had the benefit of education all the Mm. way up to well Mm -hmm. 12th grade level or something like that Mm -hmm. how do we how do we think about accessibility is awfully important yeah 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 that maybe is kind of a good kind of our final my final final question is around this sort of the impact of this for spiritual Mm. formation so this kind of Mm. what what are some of those practical implications of this narrative approach for our preaching and teaching but and then how we understand formation and discipleship and how does it yeah what impact does it make in the life of in the life of a a follower of jesus to read the bible in this way well i would say you know for preachers um, I, I try to loosen up my students to say what it would be to, to preach a whole segment of a text. They have to do an assignment in one of my classes on Matthew 21 through 22, which is like 90 verses of text. It's mm-hmm. the controversies in the temple. So the Jesus entry, temple mm-hmm. controversy, and then kind of the Jewish leaders of different you know, different sects or groups come to Jesus with different questions and kind of test. I think it's a riddling session, actually, in a book I'm working on currently on riddles in Matthew is one chapter. Um, but as as they have to work through that, um, I have them do a preaching plan. And mm-hmm. I say, I don't necessarily, in fact, I, unless you tell me why you're doing it this way, I don't want you to just go sequentially through it and choose because it's only three or four sessions. So unless they're going to take huge sections, of t- which they can, you know, I, I'd like you to think, would you go through by theme? What are you seeing that you want to highlight for people? Mm. Uh, and so encouraging them to get a get out of this rut of just eight verses and three points and, you know, whatever it is. And, the verses, uh, and I know that's, I know, know the homileticians yeah. would say, but it's not how we teach people to do stuff. So I understand that. Um, but, you know, yeah. How do we do kind of wider sweeps? Mm. You could preach on Matthew in four weeks. Why wouldn't you be able to? You have to be selective. You're always selective. You could teach on Matthew in mm-hmm. 10 weeks, but, but, you know, just, Preaching on it for the next five years, there's nothing terribly 
um, th- that's not a necessarily better decision than four mm. weeks. So yeah. kind of loosening preachers up to think about taking on larger sections of texts, um, I think because it, it shows a window into something different for those who are listening. Um, in terms of teaching, um, I mentioned Don Vers, but um, he he told me, because I had, you know, kind of lived through the era in seminary where you just do a, you know, it's basically introductory issues, author, audience, date, purpose, theme. Mm-hmm. And then you're done with your class on Matthew. Wow. that You know, I mean, he's like, jump into Matthew 1 on the first day and just start teaching. Walk mm-hmm. through the text with people and then, you know, throw in introductory issues where you have time and, you know, third week introduce this piece or, you know, like, oh, yeah. that was the greatest advice. It was scary. I'm like, I don't know if I know Matthew that well, that we can just walk through it together. Mm-hmm. What if they ask me a question and I have no idea how to answer it, which of course happened all the time, <laughs> but it was, it was so good. Yeah. Just teach through the text, you know, so that kind of set me up for, I think the way I teach, but also my writing. Um, and then in terms of formation, um, I, I, I know I was trained to think that a, a verse um, was sort of the level at which God was going to form me, you know, like a single verse mm-hmm. is going to shimmer at me or something like that. I was going to find a nugget for life today. Um, and I, you know, I can't do that anymore. My values yeah. in terms of reading just don't allow that, which is fine because then something across all 21 chapters of John intrigues me like the theme of life, which I've written on before, which I'm currently writing on. I've written on sort of, creation, the renewal of creation in, in John. And, and you can read about it in the chapter on John and intertextuality. Um, but I'm also writing something right now on Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah of life in John. Mm. Um, and that's just something that keeps on coming back to me as, you know, who doesn't want to live? Who doesn't want this fullness of life that we know as this Johanna and I've come to give you life and give it mm. to you as the full. Um, what does it mean in that this is the one who is life, who is himself life, just as God is life. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've thought about that theme a lot, but it's been very formative. It is mm-hmm. being very formative in my life. So thinking that I can only kind of hear from God in the smallest bits of scripture, I would say you might be surprised if you, you know, read more wider and you have more text and you think, what is that thing that keeps on dangling across the whole thing? That's mm-hmm. a theme. Oh, wow. I'm going to follow that trail. Mm. Um, I, I just think there's a lot of ways God forms yeah, and uses scripture to do so, speaks through the texts. Um, and so looking for it in a way that yeah, you know, in a new new place or in a way that makes sense. If you think, okay, yeah, this larger section probably, I mean, the, the bigger picture is probably an important thing to pay attention to at some mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. I just say, trust that God will speak to you through that bigger mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And form you and your community, hopefully as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Janine, it's been so good to talk to you. We're so looking forward to having you here in the summer. What are you looking forward to? in terms of your visit to Vancouver? I have never been to Vancouver other than as a stop through. So I'm mm-hmm. very excited. I'm bringing my husband, Tim. So we're mm-hmm. going to enjoy ourselves. Um, I So this is sort of Gospels as Stories is kind of the backbone piece of the course, but I'm, I'm not choosing the same chapters to illustrate the different points. So we're going to go quite different places um, in terms of plotting with something besides Luke. And so th- we're going to just practice a lot of the skills mm-hmm. and then we're bringing acts in. 
And I haven't done a ton of, I've done no writing on X. Uh, I've taught through X, but not any, you know, published publications. So I am, well, I shouldn't say that. I have something that's on Luke X that came out just last year. Um, a theme, surprisingly, mm-hmm. um, not surprisingly. And so I'm looking forward to diving into characters and point of view in acts, which I think could be really interesting. And I've got a lot of cool acts scholars on my list of people I want us to interact with. So, mm. oh, so Gospels sweet. plus acts. Yeah. yeah. What a little bonus, little mm-hmm. bonus. Yes, it is a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> a long bonus book, right? Yeah, yeah, oh my goodness. Right. It's going to be really fun. And I, I don't know fully what we're going to do in that last Friday on acts, but it's going to be just be a great. hoot and yeah. fun and insightful and powerful and Great. I can say that because I don't know what we're doing yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, that's right. It's kind of, it's sort of, um, it's kind of prophetic maybe. Yeah, it's yeah. ideation yeah. stage. Right. <laughs> well, um, we're so looking forward to having you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And oh, we're so glad to be here. in July. July. Yeah. Yes. See you then. Love to see you. Okay, take care. Great. Thanks so much, Janine. It's been, right. that's been awesome. Fantastic. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.